Hello, my name is Helen Puinica Worms, and I'm Professor and Vice Provost of Science at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And today I'm going to be discussing how this cell cycle is regulated. And you may wonder from the title of my talk what frogs, clams, and yeast possibly have in common with humans. But what you'll see by the end of my presentation is that scientists working on these disparate organisms have come to a unified con concept of how the cell cycle is regulated. And this includes the cell cycle in frogs and clams and sea urchins and yeast and even plants. So let's get started. So my laboratory for many years has been interested in how the cell cycle is regulated. And this will be the topic of our first lecture. In the second lecture, I'll be discussing how checkpoints interface with the cell cycle machinery to bring about cell cycle delays. And I will define what checkpoints are. Then we'll move to how cancer cells derail these key regulatory pathways. And finally, we'll discuss how we can take advantage of this basic fundamental knowledge of cell cycle and checkpoint control to selectively kill cancer cells. So we're going to begin with the history of the cell cycle. And so here we'll be discussing these disparate organisms. We'll be hearing about um, the African clawed frog, Xenopus levis. This is great for biochemistry. We'll be hearing about sea urchins and clams. And these are great organisms because they're um, embryonic cell cycles. And we can understand uh, what's going on because of the great synchrony of these models. We'll be turning to yeast because that's where we identified the key genes that regulate the cell division cycle. And up here you see um, a tissue culture cells. And we're going to really begin with um, the culturing of, of mostly human cells and mouse cells. So the history of the cell cycle really begins with the final stage of the cell division cycle. And that's a that's called mitosis. And what you can see here on this slide is a depiction of the root of an onion. And this is a highly mitotic organ. And what, our, what scientists um, Strasberg and Fleming in the 1880s first defined mitosis. And they defined it um, because as mitose, which is Greek for thread, and mitosis is the action of threads in division. So if you look at this actively mitotic uh, root tip, you'll see cells at different stages of mitosis. So what you see, for example, in uh, what's labeled as B are cells that are just beginning to enter into mitosis. You begin to see the chromosomes condense into these thread-like structures. If you look at, for example, C, here the chromosomes have um, moved apart to the two daughter cells. That's known as anaphase. And in the panels labeled E, these are two daughter cells that have completed mitosis. So what happened next was a lot of description of what the various stages of mitosis, which are illustrated here. So mitosis begins with a process called prophase. And this is where the chromosomes first begin to condense and the nuclear envelope dissolves. The next stage is metaphase. And this is where the sister chromatids align on the metaphase plate. And then in a process known as anaphase, those sister chromatids are pulled apart. And then finally, cytokinesis, where the two daughter cells separate um, to form uh, two independent cells. So prior to the 1950s then, the cell cycle was really seen as mitosis and then this nondescript phase called interphase. 
And interphase was defined as the part of the cell cycle that elapses between one mitosis and the next. And it wasn't until the 1950s that a very classic experiment was performed by Howard and Pelk. And what they did is, again, they took the root tips of plants. Again, these are highly mitotic um, structures. And they incubated the roots of those plants with radioactive phosphorus. And what they observed is that DNA synthesis occurred in a very discrete period of time. And so this was called S phase for DNA synthesis phase. And so in the 1950s, which we came to this um, view of the cell division cycle, and this is how it remains today. So we have S phase and mitosis, and then there were two phases that were really operationally defined. So the G1 phase, or gap phase one, is the time between completion of mitosis and the beginning of a new round of DNA synthesis. Whereas G2 phase, or gap phase two, is the time between the completion of DNA synthesis and the commencement of mitosis. Again, this is very descriptive. Scientists really wanted to know what were the key molecular drivers of this process. And so, you know, again, it was how do... What are the key drivers that take a cell from interphase through mitosis? And then, very importantly, what prevents the cell cycle from moving backwards? That would be a disaster. And so, there were some classic experiments performed by um, Rao and Johnson in the 1970s where they began to tackle this question. And what they did was to take, again, these tissue culture cells, and they were able to synchronize them at different phases of the cell division cycle. And then they fused them together, and they began to then determine what stages of the cell cycle were dominant to others, and uh, began to identify that there actually were blocks to going backwards in the cell cycle. So take, for example, um, the top panel. Here, what these scientists did was to take cells that were arrested in the G1S and G2 phases of the cell cycle, and they fused them to a mitotic cell. And what they found is that mitotic cells contained an M-phase inducer, a dominant factor that would drive cells in earlier stages of the cell cycle into mitosis, okay? So they called this an M-phase inducer. They could do the same thing here in the middle panel if they took a G1 cell and fused it to an S-phase cell. What would happen is the G1 cell would prematurely enter into S-phase. So again, there was some dominant factor in S-phase which could bring this G1 cell along into S-phase. Now, by contrast, if you look down here, If you were to take an S-phase cell um, and fuse that to a G2 cell, the G2 cell would not re-replicate its DNA. That cell would sit there and wait for the S-phase cell to complete DNA synthesis before the cell cycle would move forward. So this said there was some active factor that blocked re-replication, okay? And so this is illustrated on this slide where you can see the results that that Rao and Johnson found when they fused a mitotic cell with a G1 cell. So if you see that G1 and M cell, you see that the chromosomes, again, are condensing into these thread-like structures, um, and they are not... haven't gone through S phase, so they're sort of like skinny spaghetti cells. If you look in the middle, this is fusing an S phase cell with a mitotic cell. Now, this is a disaster for a cell because 
In this case, the cell is trying to actively replicate its genetic material, and now you've fused it with this dominant emphase inducer. And in this case, then, you basically pulverize your genetic material, get an S-phase catastrophe. And you'll hear later, we try to do this now to kill cancer cells. And then finally, if one takes a G2 cell and fuses it to an M-phase cell, now again, you see the G2 DNA condensing, and it's thicker here because the chromosomes have already replicated. So now we're going to move to the next stage where scientists said, okay, we have all this descriptive information, but what are the key players that are driving us um, into mitosis? What is this dominant M-phase inducer? And the organism that became critical to to understanding that is, again, this Xenopus levis, this um, African clawed frog. This um, frog, in its belly, has hundreds and hundreds of oocytes at different stages of development. And upon a natural stimulus, like progesterone, the most mature oocyte will mature into an egg. And so you can get huge amounts of cells either at the oocyte stage, which is arrested at G2, or at the egg phase cell, which is arrested in mitosis. And so this was a wonderful way to do some biochemistry. And so in this slide, we're showing you what the oocyte and eggs look like. And again, you can get huge amounts of this material for biochemistry. And so what was done then was to... um, If you take the oocyte, again, as I said, it's arrested at the G2 phase of the cell division cycle. The natural hormone that will then mature this oocyte into an egg um, is progesterone. And what you can see is the G2 phase oocyte is then uh, matured, as it was called, into an egg, which then is ready to be fertilized. And the egg is arrested in metaphase of meiosis II. So you can think of this as a pure population of interphase G2 cells and mitotic cells. And so what um, the key experiments that were done in the early 1970s was to um, take this stage 6 oocyte, incubate it with progesterone so that it would mature into an egg, and then scientists would take a little bit of that cytoplasm out of that egg and then inject it into a new oocyte. And that new oocyte would mature into an egg. And they could do this repeatedly. And the important thing about the serial transfer, it said that it wasn't a little bit of progesterone being dragged along in the pipette. You actually were generating this dominant M-phase factor. Now, it was called maturation-promoting factor because basically what you did is you matured the oocyte into an egg. But what was key is that um, scientists found that this factor was present um, in many different organisms. And so you can see it was present in starfish and oocyte eggs, mouse oocytes, mammalian cells, and even yeast. So the name was changed from maturation-promoting factor to emphase-promoting factor. And And it got everyone excited because it said this was a universal factor in all of these disparate organisms that were... that was able to drive cells from interphase into mitosis. So the next um, important milestone uh, that was achieved was to create a cell-free extract to try to purify this emphase promoting factor. And so what was done here was to, again, make use of the frog, and they... and what scientists would do was to isolate cytoplasm from 
activated frog eggs. And so when you activate a frog egg, it will leave mitosis and go into interphase. And then they'd incubate that with um, sperm from the frog and in a very concentrated extract with ATP for energy. And what would happen is the uh, DNA would replicate, a nucleus would form around that DNA, and this, uh, the cell then, extract, would then recreate the cell division in vitro out of the organism. And so this was a great system now to do biochemical purification because these extracts would go through several rounds of mitosis and then interphase and mitosis and interphase. So now we come to how M the MPF was purified. Here we, you see a picture of the frog. They, you can collect beakers full of eggs. And this is what um, the Mahler lab did. And so you induce that frog to lay eggs and you crush the eggs to make soluble extracts. You then fractionate the egg extracts using a variety of different biochemical techniques. And then you test those individual fractions for their ability to drive an interface cell into mitosis. So again, back to this in vitro assay, you know, you again, you take the interphase extract and you add that sperm DNA, you let it replicate, you let it form a nucleus, and then you can take individual fractions from these different biochemical purification steps and ask which ones will drive this interphase cell into mitosis. And so doing that, the um, scientists then, the Mahler group, co-purified two proteins. So two proteins co-purified with this M phase activity, M phase promoting activity. One protein was 32 kilodaltons in size, the other was 45 kilodaltons in size. And what they showed it is it had an associated protein kinase activity, and one of the substrates um, the scientists liked to use at that time was histone H1. So this activity would phosphorylate this substrate in vitro. Now, if this was you today as a graduate student, you have great resources um, to be able to really figure out what this 32KD and 45KD proteins were. You would do mass spectrometry, you would get sequence, you would um, then search the uh, publicly available databases, and in short order, you would know what these proteins were. But back in 1984, we didn't have this technology. And so this basically sat here for a while. And so we're going to leave the frog and we're going to move into a new organism, but I want you to remember what we talked about because we'll come back to it. And now we're going to turn to the marine invertebrates, the sea urchin and the clam, to describe the discovery of a very important protein. And these are the cyclin proteins. And so they were named because they showed periodic accumulation and destruction as a function of the cell cycle. You can see them rising and falling, okay? And most proteins, so what was done here was to take sea urchin eggs and incubate them with um, S35 methionine to label all new proteins. Most proteins just rise linearly across the cell cycle. But this unique set of proteins, again, showed this periodic rise and fall. And so they were named cyclins. And you can see an SDS gel here where you can see these cyclins A and B. They're rising throughout interphase. As cells exit mitosis, you see them disappear. You see them come up in the next interphase, and you see them disappear. And that's why they were named cyclins. And so um, what the, uh, the Ruderman lab uh, did was to isolate the messenger RNA for one of these cyclins. 
and inject it into a frog oocyte. Recall that oocyte is arrested in the G2 phase of the cell cycle. And lo and behold, when that cyclin mRNA was translated into protein, you were then able to get this oocyte to mature into an egg. So that said, cyclin was important for the process. But a key experiment done subsequent to this by the Murray and Kirshner group was to actually take again, go back to this in vitro assay. And now what they did is to treat first with an enzyme called RNase. Okay? And so this will destroy all of the RNA in the cell. Then they inhibited that RNase activity with an enzyme called RNasin. And then they could take cyclin mRNA and add it to the extract. And so now this is the only messenger RNA present. Okay? And the translation of that messenger RNA into a protein was able to drive that interphase cell into a mitotic cell. So this said that cyclin was uh, sufficient to do that within the context of this extract. So to summarize then, we started out with the classic experiments by Rao and Johnson, where again, they did these fusion experiments with tissue culture cells, showing that emphase was dominant to all other states. We then moved to the Xenopus levis, where we showed that um, the MPF activity co-purified with two proteins, a 45-KD protein and a 32-KD protein. And this activity was high in mitosis and low in interphase. And then we moved to the marine invertebrates, and we showed that cyclin was necessary and sufficient to drive mitotic entry. Okay? So I want you to remember all of this because we're going to come back to that. But now we're going to turn to the yeast. Okay? So we have two different types of yeast, budding yeast and fission yeast. And these have evolved as far from each other as we have to yeast. But they, and they provide scientists with unique opportunities to do genetics. Okay? And so by these genetic experiments, what they were able to do was to identify the key genes that are important for regulating the cell division cycle. The experiments, uh, the classic first experiments were done by Lee Hartwell and budding yeast. Um, but we're going to discuss fission yeast because fission yeast, uh, it grows double in size and divides by binary fission and spends most of its life in G2. And so this is going to be an important organism for identifying the regulators of, um, that they can move a cell from G2 into mitosis. So here's the life cycle of a fission yeast. And what's, um, what you can see is the fission yeast here, um, through the cell cycle, it grows double in size, divides by binary fission. So the two daughter cells are equal in size to the original parental cell. Now here's an example of a CDC mutant. This mutant continues to grow, but it cannot divide. Okay? So this, you, you know, this has to be what's called a conditional mutant, because otherwise these yeasts wouldn't live. But if you now were to turn, switch the culture to the permissive temperature, these cells would divide, and now the daughter cells would be larger than the original parental cell. So what this tells you about this type of gene is that it's important for driving the cell cycle forward. It's a positive regulator of the cell division cycle. And so one of the key genes that came out of this was called CDC2. Or in humans, we call it the CDK1, and it's a protein kinase. So at the non-permissive temperature, 
these yeast will continue to grow and not divide, as you see in panel B. So what uh, the scientists did then was to clone the gene, and they showed that it encoded a protein kinase that phosphorylates this substrate histone H1 in vitro. And they then showed that the kinase activity was high in mitosis and low in interphase. So recall, this is what we saw for MPF. Its activity is high in mitosis, low in interphase. There's a kinase activity there. This kinase can phosphorylate histone H1. All right, so now we come to the unification where all of this information we're going to tie together. So how did scientists do that? So what they did is they took antibodies specific for the fission yeast CDC2 protein and showed that it recognized the 32KD protein present in the Xenopus partially purified MPF prep. At the same time, other scientists took antibodies specific for the Xenopus cyclin B, and they showed it recognized the 45KD protein in the partially purified MPF prep. And then other investigators, and this was all happening at the same time, they took a fission yeast reagent to precipitate out CLAM MPF. And they showed that antibodies against both the CLAM, cyclin, and CDC2 were present um, in that uh, purified prep. And so we come now to the unification model. So in yeast, that was the identification of the protein kinase, CDC2, or CDK1 in humans. That binds to a cyclin, which was identified in sea urchins and clams, and that creates the MPF that we was first biochemically purified in frogs. So MPF is a heterodimer between a protein kinase and a regulatory subunit, a cyclin. And these are the gentlemen that did the early and seminal discoveries in this field. So you have Lee Hartwell, um, who uh, was the first to set up uh, these um, the CDC screens in budding, in budding yeast. You have um, Tim Hunt, who worked on sea urchins and uh, was the first to really identify and characterize and name the cyclins. And then you have Paul Nurse, who uh, works in fission yeast. He was responsible for identifying a lot of the key G2 regulators. He also did an amazing experiment at the time, which was he could take fission yeasts that were conditional for CDC2 switch to the non-permissive temperature and come in with a human cDNA library. And he could rescue this phenotype in yeast. So it shows how conserved all of these genes are. You can take a human gene and complement uh, for the loss of CDC2 in fission yeast. This was a remarkable finding at the time. And these gentlemen shared the Nobel Prize in Medicine and Physiology uh, for this discovery, for their discoveries. All right, so now let's turn to the regulation of CDC2. We now know um, it's important that when uh, cells are in interphase, it's not active. As they move through mitosis, it has to be activated. And then it becomes inactivated as cells exit mitosis. So how does that happen? So what we know is that, when we're going to talk about the human situation now, that the CDC2 protein levels are actually constant throughout the cell cycle, okay? So you can move throughout the entire cell cycle, and the overall level of this protein doesn't change. But recall, look at its activity. It, it, it's, even though it's present early in the cell cycle, it's not active until cells enter mitosis, and then it drops away. Now, is, and we know cyclin's important, but the question is if cyclin binding is the only important factor in regulating CDC2, then what we should see is as cyclin accumulates, 
CDC2 kinase activity should accumulate. And when cycling goes away, CDC2 kinase which should go away. But this is not what we see. Again, what we see is cyclin proteins accumulating, but at that time, there's no activity of CDC2. So there is this window between S and G2 where the cyclin is bound to CDC2, but it's not active. So this tells us there's other important factors that are regulating the kinase activity of this heterodimer. Okay? And so the question is what keeps CDC2 off during interphase, and how is CDC2 activated to drive cells into mitosis? So again, we come back to fission yeast. And as we mentioned, fission yeast will divide by binary fission so that the final daughter cells are equal in size to the original parental cell. Here's an example of CDC2 mutants. And this includes um, genes, CDC2 gene, which we mentioned. CDC13 is actually the fission yeast um, cyclin. And then this gene called CDC25. And then we have other types of mutants. Uh, these are we one mutants. And so here, what happens when you shift to the non-permissive temperature is the cell divides too quickly. And so the progeny are actually smaller than the original parental cell. So this was called a we mutant because of the reduced cell size. You're going to see this is also a protein kinase. And what this type of mutant tells you is that the normal function of this gene is to slow down the cell cycle. It's a, it's a negative regulator of the cell cycle. And so by then biochemically characterizing all of these and placing them into pathways, what we found um, in the field is CDC2 binds to cyclin and then it's activated upon by both protein kinases and protein phosphatases to regulate it. Okay? And so in the human situation, what we see is that CDC2 is present throughout interphase. The B-type cyclins begin to accumulate in mid-S and they immediately bind to CDC2. This heterodimer is not active. And the reason it's not active is because it's immediately modified through post-translational modifications. The We1 protein kinase is a kinase that phosphorylates CDC2 to inhibit it. And the CAC1 protein kinase, it stands for CDK activating kinase, it phosphorylates CDC2, uh, and that's an activating phosphorylation. But this is the form of the kinase that accumulates throughout interphase. It's bound to its cyclin, but it's inactive because it's phosphorylated on these inhibitory sites. Then a protein phosphatase known as CDC25 dephosphorylates the complex. This is what we call active MPF. It's bound to cyclin, and it's phosphorylated on that activating site. So this is how cells then move from interphase into mitosis. Now, how do cells get out of mitosis? Recall there's a precipitous drop in activity as cells exit mitosis. And that's because the cyclin is degraded. And the cyclin is degraded through a process called ubiquitin-mediated proteolysis. And so what happens is the cyclin becomes modified by a molecule called ubiquitin. That then targets uh, the cyclin to the proteasome, which is a molecular machine that degrades the cyclin. And now you return CDC2 to its monomeric inactive form. And so we've now described how CDC2 is activated. And the fact that the key regulator is degraded, this now prevents the cell division cycle from moving backwards. So we've described how 
uh, entry into mitosis is regulated. And so the majority of this lecture was focused on the CDC2 protein kinase. But what's really wonderful about uh, understanding that paradigm is that actually every cell division cycle transition is regulated by a cyclin-dependent kinase bound to its corresponding cyclin. So you can see here in G1, we have CDK4 and 6 bound to cyclin D. We have CDK2 bound to cyclin E. And again, all the, it's a universal feature of eukaryotic organisms for multiple CDKs to regulate um, different cell cycle transitions by the cyclins they bind. And we'll be discussing uh, this in greater t- detail in the next lecture where we turn to um, the checkpoints and um, how we can use this information now to um, begin to translate this information to treat human cancers. So thank you for your time.